if I don't say anything, they won't ever know about it. Just this once won't matter. It's not going to hurt anyone. I can't believe that person did that. I would never do that. It's not that big of a deal. I can always ask for forgiveness later. I can handle it. I'm strong enough to say no. I've got all this under control. I won't ever get caught. These are all internal conversations that you and I have. Sometimes yearly, sometimes monthly, sometimes weekly, perhaps even for some of us daily, is it not? The temptation to sin is real. It's a daily crossroads that we cannot totally avoid. The temptation to sin is real for baby Christians. And the temptation to sin is real for mature and seasoned Christians too. The temptation to sin is real for church members. And the temptation to sin is also very real for church leaders as well. And statements like these are rarely said out loud to other people. To say out loud what we're being tempted to think, tempted to believe, or tempted to do that which is sinful, it could be humiliating and shameful to share with others out loud what we're tempted to do. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't confess to one another how we're tempted. I think that's a mark of humility, but it's certainly not easy to do so either. But statements like these have been said many times, loud and clear, inside our own private thoughts, inside our own internal self-counseling sessions. Regardless if we've ever shared them with others or not, the secret thoughts of our most sinful cravings are certainly known by us. And beloved, whether we understand this this morning or not, whether we have a consciousness of it or not, these secret thoughts of our most sinful cravings are perfectly and clearly known by our God. That's precisely why Jesus said some strong words about our internal desires, the alluring of temptation, and how we need to remain vigilant over our lives so that we're not duped by them. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter, James, and John in the Garden of Gethsemane right before they abandoned him? Matthew 26, verse 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. According to Jesus, if those private sinful thoughts that no one knows about is combined with prideful self-reliance, if it is not decimated, if it is not cut out of our daily meditations, friends, slowly but surely they become illicit fantasies. Illicit fantasies that then turn into deceitful plans. Deceitful plans that can turn into foolish decisions that can ruin our life. 
that can ruin our families, that can ruin our churches, ruin our careers, ruin our reputation, ruin our witness for Christ. Brothers and sisters, life is full of small and big decisions, momentous and habitual decisions, and decisions we are making today with our life could have a profound effect of where our lives are at one year from now. Decisions we're making right now, friends, right now in 2024 could have a profound effect of how we will finish our life on earth. No wonder J.C. Ryle once said, every day you are either getting nearer to God or further off. So as followers of Jesus Christ, the reality of these conflicting desires is what it means to live for Christ in a fallen world with our sinful flesh, with temptations all around us. And truth be told, these daily decisions and conflicting desires, they can be fierce, friends. It can be an all-out war, relentless, deceptive, even overwhelming at times. But why is that? Why can the decision about doing what is right, obeying Jesus and drawing nearer to God, And the decision to do that which is wrong, which would be disobeying Jesus and pushing him further away, why can that be such a fierce battle for us at any given moment? And what do we do in those moments in our lives, friends, where we do choose the wrong decision and we make a mess of our lives? And what do we do when we come under conviction that we have, in fact, sinned? against a holy, just, good, and all-knowing God. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, if you're using one of the pew Bibles or chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 271, Psalm 51. In our current Psalm series, we spent last week looking at David's well-known Psalm of Psalm 23. A psalm that instructed us that all sheep need a shepherd. But there is only one shepherd worth trusting your whole life with. And that shepherd is the Lord Jesus Christ. The good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. The same shepherd who promises us, as Tom read earlier from Psalm 23, 6, that only the goodness and mercy of God relentlessly pursues us for the rest of our lives. This morning, we're looking again at another very familiar and well-known psalm, but it's well-known for very different reasons than Psalm 23. Last week's psalm was a psalm to give us comfort, assurance, and confident trust in our God who shepherds us through every circumstance of life. This week's psalm is a psalm that gives us instructions on what to do and how to pray when we've blown it when we've made a mess of our lives, when we've been found out for what we have covered up, when we have sinned against God and God will not let us off the hook. You'll notice there in the heading of the psalm, right there in Psalm 51 in the superscription, that it's a psalm written by David, a psalm of David. 
And it's a song that would have been sung by the nation of Israel. That's why he begins with, to the choir master or the choir director. But it's also helpful to note that this psalm was written not in relation to some ambiguous, some small, some frivolous thing that happened in David's life. No, it's actually written probably a year or so, although we're not really sure, after one of the most tragic things that we ever read about in our Bibles. David, who was described in 1 Samuel 13, 14, by God himself, friends, a man after God's own heart, slowly slides into sin, headfirst, which turns into an avalanche of moral failure by one of the Bible's greatest heroes in the faith. The heading tells us specifically of when this tragic series of events happened. You notice there the text says, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So to get our minds this morning around the context and the weight of that heading, which is going to have a huge effect of how we read and understand Psalm 51, this penitent psalm, this humble contrition of a man, I want you to hold your spot in Psalm 51. If you have a hardback Bible, if you have an electronic one, I have no idea what you would do. But please turn back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 149. 2 Samuel 11. Now recorded down for us in both 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 12. They come back to back together. We find the account that is well known by Bible readers or in the little blacks uh, description in your English Bibles. It'll say something like David and Bathsheba. And then in chapter 12, you may see a heading that says, Nathan the prophet sent by God to confront and rebuke David. Now, this sermon is not primarily on 2 Samuel 11 and 12, but I think reading it afresh together as a church family may stir us over to think more about it this week. But I want us to hear it read again with greater clarity of what happened to a man who had it all and almost lost it all as he was brought to the end of himself because of his sin before God. And friends, I want you and I not to read this story as if, wow, I feel sorry for David. No, we should read this story asking, Lord, would you show me in my heart where I might be just like David and I don't even know it this morning. 2 Samuel 11, starting in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers 
and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. And Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. And they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow, and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew where there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone at him from the wall so that he died at Thabaz? Why do you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to, sent to him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage it. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. And bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 1 all the way to verse 14. And the Lord sent Nathan 
to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. But there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Sobering, isn't it? As we can clearly see, David did not commit a mere mistake. He didn't have a mental lapse in not knowing what God's Word said. He knew what God's Word said about marriage, about adultery, about murder, about lying. He knew what it meant to be a man of integrity. No, friends, David committed premeditated, intentional, scheming, callous, cold-hearted murder. Because of his foolish, self-centered, egotistical, sensual, sexually immoral desires that were incessantly brewing on the inside of his life. And then at just the right moment, he acted upon a temptation presented to him on a silver platter. Or for David, presented to him on the top of a roof. You see, friends, in chapter 11, we see how David lusted after another man's wife. That's where it began. He then used his power and prestige and coerced her and coaxed her to commit adultery with him. 
even causing her to become pregnant with a child. In an attempt to cover his tracks, David then lies to her husband, who is a reliable and committed man. Uriah is one of the greatest soldiers in his army who served along David's mighty men. 2 Samuel chapter 23 says, David then had others set up a situation on the battlefield to have Uriah killed to make it look like it was an unfortunate fate in a bloody war. From start to finish, from the time David was not out to battle where kings go out, but lying on his couch, when Uriah went out to fight, to the time Uriah was eventually killed, David tried to cover his tracks. He tried to cover up every little lie, every hypocrisy, everywhere he could find to make it look like he had done no wrong. It was a heinous crime committed by a king. A king who was supposed to represent God's rule and wisdom to the people. Friends, far from a God-honoring love story, this was a seditious, seductive, deceitful, adulterous affair committed in secret that David thought he could successfully pull off without being caught. But then in chapter 12, we see that David has had eyes on him from the very beginning. David was sought out by God. God sent Nathan to David. Who is Nathan? He's a prophet. He is an embodied word from the Lord. And he delivers a parable describing a cruel and unjust power play between a rich man and a poor man. And as David's listening to this mini-sermon, as we are here on Sunday morning, his moral compass is being hot with anger. And he says, justice must be served. That man is not compassionate, and he deserves death. And then Nathan masterfully turns this parable into a mini-sermon, custom-made for David's heart. Nathan declares to David, you are the man. After David hears Nathan call him out, for the first time, for the first time in a long time, David knows he has done something in the presence of God that God is displeased with. After Nathan delivers the word of the Lord and the discipline and judgments and consequences by the Lord, notice what he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I'm not preaching chapters 11 and 12, but I do want to make a very important point because we just got done reading some weighty things. Brothers and sisters, after hearing this passage, we should be warned against sexual sin and guard our lives from it. Hear this again. This is a warning. 
This is a warning about sexual sin. Here's a few reminders for us all. Never indulge in pornography. It will ruin your mind and it will destroy your life. Maintain healthy boundaries with those of the opposite sex. Guard your heart and do not ever think you are strong enough to say no all the time. If you're married, serve your spouse and pray for them. Learn to be content and thankful for God's provision with the spouse he has given you. If you are unhappy in your marriage, lead your heart with God's truth. Do not listen to your heart. It will lie to you. It will lie to me. And if your marriage is in a rough place, seek biblical help from people who care about your soul and about your marriage. Here at CCBC, we have elders. We have men and women here who love the word and want to shepherd each marriage in its proper place. Single or married, the sinful failures of others should be a warning to us And we should never think that we are above committing any sin. And I want that to feel heavy on our hearts this morning. Because that's precisely why Psalm 51 is in the canon of Scripture. So, you can turn back to Psalm 51. What did David do? He's caught. He's confronted. He's exposed. Friends, what do we do when we're caught, when we're confronted, when we're convicted, when we're exposed? What do we do? What should we do? Psalm 51 is David's heartfelt repentance before the God he could not escape. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God or a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. 
This is God's word. If you're taking notes, here's the main idea of the sermon. Our sin deeply stains and corrupts us. And only God's mercy can cleanse and save us. Our sin deeply stains and corrupts us. And only God's mercy can cleanse and save us. How deeply does sin stain and corrupt us? According to David, at the heart level. Look at me starting in verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. As David comes face to face with his sin, David knows that there's only one place and one person he can go to for pardon and for relief. He says in verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Once David is stopped in his tracks and he's brought to the end of himself, notice, friends, David does not go to his mighty men for help. David does not go on vacation to get away and clear his head. David does not go to a therapist, a counselor, or a relative in order to vent and express how he feels. David doesn't even look to himself for answers anymore. No, David has fully surrendered. He has given up running. He has given up hiding. He has given up trying to cover up what God has seen the whole time. David knew that the only place lawbreakers can go for mercy is to the one who gave the law and who also has mercy. David knew what we too must fully embrace if we want to humbly accept this morning where we cannot go anywhere else except to this same God. And it is this, mercy and grace are sovereign gifts from God. And he gives them to whomever he wills. Grace and mercy are God's sovereign gifts to give to whomever he wills. In other words, being given mercy is being spared or not given what we do deserve. Which is what? God's holy, wrathful, righteous justice and eternal punishment for our sin. What is grace? Grace and steadfast love is being blessed and favored by a generous God with blessings and benefits we do not deserve. Which is why no amount of good works that we do can make us good enough in God's sight. Friends, after David felt the weight of his sin against the Lord and he confessed it from a repentant heart, Nathan said to David, did you hear those glorious words in 2 Samuel 12? The Lord has put away your sin. Notice David does not respond, well, Lord, I'll give you more money. Lord, I'll go to the temple more. 
Lord, will you just grade on a curve? I mean, haven't I done more good than bad? I mean, come on, God. Be fair. If God were fair with all of us, he'd send us straight to hell. No, the only thing that came out of his mouth is, God, show me mercy. Friends, isn't this exactly what the Lord conveyed through the prophet Isaiah? The truth that our good works and our attempts to good, do good deeds, they won't cover our sin. Isaiah 64, verse 6, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. In Hebrew, it means a filthy menstrual rag. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Do you recall that scene when Moses pleaded for God to show him his glory? What did the Lord say back to Moses? Exodus 33, 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So here in Psalm 51, friends, it is super clear here. David is not demanding God show him mercy. He can't do that. He doesn't believe God owes it to him. He's declaring his desperate need for mercy from the only God who can give it to him. He's not arrogantly telling God that he must do this. No, he's humbly appealing to God, to his flawless and awesome character, a God who is full of grace and mercy and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him in need. Friends, it's God's character, not David's character, that is a safe place to run to. It's God's character that is most constant, most trustworthy, and the necessary place for sinners like us to get real help and receive real hope. Now, what specifically is David calling on God to be merciful about? Now, think about this. David has already done some horrific things. He's involved with adultery, murder, and lying. But in Psalm 51, aside from verse 14, where he brings up his blood guiltiness or his bloodshed, talking about his guilt of being complicit and setting up a murder. Other than there, David doesn't get very specific with his confession in a resume or catalog of sins. However, what David does do is he uses three multifaceted words to describe how sinful he really is. I want you to notice three of those common words. <clears throat> First, he mentions transgressions. Transgressions. What does that word mean? It means a lawbreaker. One who rebels and revolts against God's authority in their life. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we hear warnings of sin. We see the boundaries that he sets up and we just ignore them. We trespass. We hear what God's Word says, we read what God's Word says, and then we suppress it. We twist even God's Word at times to justify our actions. So in verse 1, he prays, blot out my transgressions. Literally, wipe my record clean. 
He prays that God would erase all the lines, erase all the history, erase all the data, erase all the markings, erase all the memories of all his transgressions off his record. David is yearning for God to give him a clean slate and a perfect report card with no mentioning of his law-breaking. He uses it again in verse 3. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Here David is seeing his sin as clear as day now. The lights are bright on the dashboard in his car. The sun is shining brightly into the dirty windows of his life. The flashlight of God's holy gaze is shining in his eyes. And now he sees the depth of his darkness. Now he sees he's been drifting from God for quite some time. One translation by one author puts it this way. David said, because personally I know my rebellions and my sin is in front of me all the time. David is saying what many of us could probably say this morning. I am ever conscious of my sin. I know what I've done. And what I've done, I can't undo. Can you identify with David's words this morning? I know I can. Do you know your rebellions? Is your sin this morning staring you in the face? If you can, you're in good company. In fact, if you recognize you're a mess and you're here because you know you can't fix yourself, you're blessed. Having clear self-awareness of your sin is a gift from God. Being self-deceived by your sin is a gift from Satan. Chew on that for a while. You see, friends, this church is full of sinners who know their rebellious tendencies and rebellious actions. One way you knew God is working in your life is that you can clearly see your sin as sin. And that's why we're here this morning. We're not here to fake it to make it. We're not here to Photoshop our life. We are rebels in our hearts. We are lawbreakers by our default setting. We come to church not to look good in front of others. We come to church to be reminded of who is good, who is perfect, and who can clean and transform us. Friends, that's why we sing about Jesus so much and not ourselves. Jesus came for rebels like us, like Luke 15. We are like the prodigal son who goes off and lives in debaucherous ways, or we're like the older brother who's self-righteous looking down on others. The same types of sinners need only this Savior. What did Jesus say in Luke 5, 30 to 32? And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Friends, that's who Jesus came to save. 
not people who don't see their sin. He came to people who see their sin and their need for him. And again, you see in verse 13, David mentions that word transgressors again. Secondly, David mentions iniquity. Iniquity in verse 2, 5, and 9. Iniquity speaks of our perversity, the depravity of our fallen nature. Friends, all sin is bad, but if sin goes unchecked, if God doesn't stop us in our tracks, there is no limit to the types of sins we could indulge in. So similar to verse 1, in verse 9, he pleads with God, blot out, wipe out, erase his iniquity. Look at verse 9. Hide your face from my sins. David doesn't want him to look at them anymore. And blot out all my iniquities. One scholar says this, iniquity is a crooked or wrong act, often associated with a conscious and intentional intent to do wrong. Iniquity, friends, is not just corrupt actions. Iniquity is corrupt motives of our hearts. Thirdly, David mentions the more common word we are most familiar with, sin or sinners. He mentions that in verse 2, 3, 4, 5, 9, and 13. Sin refers to missing the mark. God has set a standard and we have not met that standard. Just like Adam and Eve were given a clear word from the Lord. And they did what? They listened to the serpent. They listened to one another. And they did not listen to God. Sin is the creature's craving to be God and for our creator to do our bidding. That's what sin is. One theologian puts it this way. Sin unmans a man. Or you could put it this way. Sin unwomans. A woman. That's why sin is bad. It dehumanizes us. We were created in the image of God. And when we sin, we distort that image. We become bent on ourselves. Instead of imaging the goodness of all God has made is good, we make it not good. We make the image of God ungodly. That's why sin is always, first and foremost, friends, an adversarial assault and an egregious offense against God. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Friends, that's an interesting way to put that, isn't it? David committed a whole host of sins against a lot of people. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against his own family. He sinned against the nation of Israel. He sinned against his own body. He sinned against his own military. Friends, even his own sin brought judgment on his child. But David knows what we must come to know here this morning. There are no men or women in this world that are our final judge. God is our judge. And he will always do what is right. David didn't blame God for any of his sin. He wanted God's discipline. He wanted God's justice to be carried out however God saw fit. The only manly thing David did in this season of his life is that he owned up to his sin and did not blame shift like Adam anymore. 
You know that's what a true mark of humility looks like? And men, I'll just start with us. True manliness is not blame shifting. True manliness is not blaming your actions and words on how you were raised or how your boss treats you or what state you live in or the weather or your genetics or whatever. You own it. As one pastor told me in marital counseling, if your wife is 99% wrong and you are 1% wrong, you own that 1% as if you were 100% wrong. That's true manliness. And the same goes for our sisters here. To own it. To not blame it on the devil like Eve did. To blame it on hormones or emotions or bad moods. But to own your sin 100% as a sin against God. David here is modeling for us what true repentance looks like. What the Bible calls in 2 Corinthians 7.10, godly grief or godly sorrow that produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Do you know what the difference is between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow? Jim Neuheiser says this, worldly sorrow is self focused and hates the consequences of sin. Godly sorrow is focused on God and others and hates the sin itself. Worldly sorrow seeks to shift blame and resist accountability. Godly sorrow fully accepts responsibility and welcomes accountability. So kids, if your parents catch you telling a lie, If your parents catch you not doing something that you should be doing or doing something you should not be doing, the most right way to respond is to acknowledge to your parents, mom and dad, thank you for telling me my fault. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And then go be alone in your room and cry out to God. Pray to God and say, Lord, I've sinned against you. Because what I learned this morning at church, sin is always first and foremost against God before it's against anyone else. Parents, we have to model that with our kids. Grandparents, same goes for your kids and grandkids too. Your friends, your roommates, all sin is first against God. We need to get right with God before we can even attempt to get right with one another. Friends, pray that our church would respond to sin biblical like that. Our individual sin, sin in our homes, even corporately as a church. Pray that CCBC not be known as a stuck-up, self-righteous church, but a repenting church. And friends, praise God, I see the fruits of humility in our congregation. I don't see a lot of the pretense that I have preached to in previous contexts. But friends, we need to be reminded of God's goodness and mercy and also our sin every week so that we stay humble and remind ourselves we need Christ. You see, friends, David had all these words brought to light to his soul. Transgression, iniquity, sin. It's coming to the forefront of his mind. And then he tags on with it. Did you notice all the different personal pronouns of my, I, and me? 
Friends, he speaks about this in the first person about a dozen times to show I'm not blaming anyone on this. I'm going to own it. But friends, David could only own it when he was brought very low by God. What was the cause for David's snowball effect of sin? His pride. His pride. David's greatest enemy, listen friends, was not the devil. David's greatest enemy was not Goliath. David's greatest enemy was not Saul or the Ammonite army. David's greatest enemy was himself. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Friends, the same is true for us. One could make the argument that pride and unbelief are the root of all our sin. Too much of us and too little of God in our hearts can lead to all forms of destruction in our life. Listen to this quote by J.C. Ryle. We may be very sure that men fall in private long before they fall in public. They are backsliders on their knees long before they backslide openly in the eyes of the world. Like Peter, they first disregard the Lord's warning to watch and pray. And then, like Peter, their strength is gone, and in the hour of temptation, they deny their Lord. The world takes notice of their fall and scoffs loudly, but the world knows nothing of the real reason. Because of the deep-rooted sin of pride in each one of us, friends, none of us have exempt status from committing the most heinous and dark sins imaginable. That's why David goes so far as to confess that his sin problem goes all the way back to his preborn state when he was conceived in his mother's womb. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, friends, have you ever found yourself in one of those discussions or debates when people make bad choices in their lives? They go, why did they do that? Was it the environment they grew up in? Or were they born that way? You know, the nature versus nurture debate? Well, the Christian's response is this. God's word says that we come out of the oven of our mother's womb baked with a sin nature. So if you ever hear someone say you're evangelizing or trying to love in a Christ-honoring way in your families or in the workplace, I was born gay. I was born wanting to be a different gender. A Christian's response should be this, with compassion. We all are born with desiring that which God forbids. We are all born with a natural proclivity to love that which God hates. We all may have different temptations. We all may have different choices of our sin, but our problem is fundamentally the same. We are all born in Adam. We are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. We are born with distorted desires, bent on self, not fearing God, and are all like sheep who have gone astray. Friends, we are sinners by nature, and we are sinners by choice. We are sinners by nature, and we are sinners by choice. We inherit the grave clothes and the sin-loving appetite of Adam and Eve left to ourselves. That's what's Romans chapter 5. If you want to study more on that on your own time. We are not sinners because we sin. 
We sin because we are sinners. And therefore, we choose to sin freely. Friends, that means there is no such thing as an autonomous, unaffected human free will. You Calvinist over at CCBC, you don't believe in the free will of man. Oh, I do. We freely choose what our sinful heart wants all day, every day, left to ourselves. Huh? Yes, it's called the bondage of the will. We freely choose that which our heart is bound to. We love our sin. We are slaves of sin. And we would never come to God unless God frees us from those shackles. How deeply does sin stain and corrupt us? Friends, it touches our minds. It touches our hearts. It touches our body. It touches our will. It wasn't just David who said that. It was David's greater son, Jesus, who said that. Matthew 15, 18, and 19. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. In verse 6 here in Psalm 51, David knows that what God cares most about inside us, we cannot produce ourselves. Look at verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Friends, did you see that? God demands of us. He delights in us what we cannot deliver on our own. God's truth and God's wisdom, we can't produce that. That is not something that comes from within us. It comes outside us to our hearts. Friends, our natural hearts pump out falsehood and folly. That means we need God to do what only God can do. We need his truth to penetrate our hard hearts. We need his wisdom to bust down the door and make its home in inside of us. Friends, did you notice almost every Sunday before I preach? What do I pray? Some of y'all are going to say it. What do I pray? Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Why do I pray that? I pray that God would take his infallible, inerrant, perfect word through a very fallible, very errant, someone you should not trust all the time, man, and penetrate our hearts. We should want God to speak to us and breathe his word inside us. Because as a Rosaria Butterfield once said, the Bible knows me better than I know myself. That means the Bible tells us what we need to get fixed and to be changed more than any other book that this earth will ever read. It's pretty clear from the language of Psalm 51. I hope you're get, getting it now. David knows he can't clean himself up. He can't even offer worship that's pleasing to God unless God does something inside him. Look at verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. To my non-Christian friend, do you see now that you, you cannot demand mercy from God? Do you see that our sin problem, friends, all of us, is far deeper? It's far staining and corrupting on our hearts 
in such a way that we can't fix ourselves? Do you see how things like Facebook and Instagram, which tempt us to Photoshop our life and not tell the truth about ourselves, is actually making our self-deception harder to overcome? Friends, the less time we spend in our Bibles and looking at things on our screen that are not of God, friends, is the less time we're going to spend understanding our sin problem. The more we spend time in our Bibles, the more we'll see our need for our big God who can solve our big sin problem. Friends, by nature, we are rebels. And by nature, we all cover up our tracks unless God brings us to our knees. As Walter Cantry said, cover up is the first instinct of a sinner whose evil deeds are about to become public. That's why David uses this language that was common throughout Leviticus and Numbers of ceremonial cleansing to capture the depth of his sin and his need for God's cleansing power. Look at verse 2. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That word wash there in the original language, it denotes a laundering or a cleaning of that which is dirty. Uh, Friends, these days people are more health conscious to use green products when cleaning a building. But back in the day, most of us in my generation and behind me now, we used to throw bleach on everything. You know, throw it on the floor, throw it on the kitchen, throw it on the toilet. Hey, throw it on the kids. Just throw it everywhere. I want to smell bleach. I mean, it's sick. I mean, anyway, we thought it worked. White shoes, white socks, white shirts, give it some bleach. Did you know the word, the root of that word, cleanse and wash? It has the same idea. David's praying, Lord, drench me in your holy bleach. Soak me in the washing machine of your mercy. Get every last bit of demonic, selfish, perverse fantasies, sinister attitudes, religious hypocrisy, unholy hatred, callous selfishness, unforgiveness, bitterness, pernicious pride, and ugly sin out of my life. Oh, friends, do we pray like that? Do we want to take sin and give it a good chokehold and say, God, I want to kill this sin. Wash me. Cleanse me. Take the dirtiness of my heart. I have been fighting my whole life and make me yours. Look at verse 7. He doesn't stop. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was a plant used during the time of the Passover as the plant was dipped in the blood and it was put on the doorposts of the houses. When the Jews would put the blood on the houses, it was a sign that God would pass over in judgment and show mercy to the people. Hyssop was also used to treat those who had a skin disease like leprosy in Leviticus 14. It was also to make one ceremonial clean who had touched a dead body. Therefore, the hyssop plant is a symbol for us that we need God's mercy so that he passes over us in judgment. The hyssop is another symbol to show us that we must be clean to enter into God's presence and enter into his worship. That's why in verses 10 to 12, he calls out to God to solve our biggest problem that we cannot fix ourselves. Look what he says in verses 10 to 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. For all you word study nerds, the word create there in the Hebrew is bara. It's the same word used in Genesis 1 when God created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. In other words, David is saying, just like you spoke the world into existence, you created it. I need you to create in me what only you can do. A clean heart. Spurgeon said, none but God can create a new heart or a new earth. David recognizes that only God can give him this heart transplant. And David was reminded in verse 11 that as king, he was given the spirit, just like Saul was, but Saul had disregarded and disobeyed God. God removed his spirit from priests, prophets, and kings if they disobeyed his covenant. David's come to realize that apart from God, he can do nothing. David recognizes that only God can restore his heart. Only God can bring joy where sin has brought bitterness. Brothers and sisters, this is good news for wretched sinners like us. Our hearts are bent on evil, but God delights in giving us new hearts that love him. Our record is filthy with sin, transgressions, and iniquity, but God can wipe the record clean and wash us white as snow. Our sins from our past, our sins in the present are many, but God's mercy through Jesus Christ is much, much more. You see, friends, we need a better king than David. We need a better friend than David. We need a better bridegroom than David. We need a better example than David. We need someone who has never covered their tracks their whole life because they never had sin to cover up. We need someone who didn't murder others to get their sin, but was murdered for the sins of his people to atone, to cancel our debt against this holy God. We need someone who can take out that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. We need someone to give us the spirit to embolden us, to empower us, to restore to us the joy of our salvation. Friends, and that someone came, and that person is Jesus Christ, and in him alone. The Lord says in Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake, and I will remember your sins no more. Friends, that prophecy was fulfilled in the new covenant, sealed with Christ's blood. In the new covenant, God forgives us of all our sins, and in Christ, he remembers our sins no more. Jesus did not come to save his life at our expense. Jesus came to give up his life at his expense so that we might be saved, cleansed, and blessed with the mercies and grace of God forever. Friends, the bad news is that our sin corrupts us at the deepest heart level. The good news is Jesus can give us clean records, clean hearts, and a renewed joy to serve him. So what can we learn this morning from Psalm 51? Let me give you a few things to consider. What can we learn about confessing our own sins to God and genuine repentance in our own life? Number one, we must see all our sin as exceedingly sinful in the eyes of God. We must see all our sin 
as exceedingly sinful in the eyes of God. Read the Ten Commandments out of Exodus 20. Read the works of the flesh in Galatians 5. Or how about some more commonly tolerated sins that we don't talk about much in church? Sins like ingratitude, impatience, envy, greed for unjust gain, gluttony, marriage apathy, parenting apathy, neglecting evangelism, neglecting discipling, harshness, laziness, divisiveness, worry, false humility, crude joking, judgmentalism. Oh, friends, we could just keep going down the list. Did you read my heart this week? You see, we are far more filthy than we understand. But we will not ever repent until sin becomes exceedingly sinful in our eyes. Number two, we must replace those sinful patterns with what God wants for us. We must replace those sinful patterns with what God wants for us. What did David do? Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David wanted joy again in God, even if he felt the consequences of his sin. What else did David do in repentance? Look at verse 13. He wanted to teach sinners the ways of God. He wanted to hide God's word in his heart again and teach people the good news about God's mercy and wisdom. David wanted in verses 14 and 15 to sing aloud of God's righteousness. Friends, when we sing before the throne of God above as we close today, let's sing of his righteousness. Let's sing loudly believing this mercy we've been given in Christ. And then in verses 18 and 19, David's not just praying for himself. He's praying for the entire nation of Israel. He's asking God to do good to Zion, the place where God's temple and God's presence met his people. He wants God to build back up the walls and to accept their worship again. Friends, these are the types of attitudes that we should want in our own life. We should be a people that are committed to do what David wants to do as a result of God's mercy, to evangelize, to disciple, to sing his praises, to see his church built up. What is true confession of sin? Richard Sibb said, confession is verbal humiliation. It's verbally agreeing with God against our sin. Thomas Brooks said this of repentance, repentance is the vomit of the soul. That's disgusting, but memorable. Friends, you know God is working in your life when sin becomes less desirable and pursuing Christ becomes more desirable. Friends, it was David's pride that led to his downfall. David was not where he should have been. And David was doing what he should not have been doing. Which led him to temptations that he never should have put himself in to begin with. So how about you and I? Are we at, every day, where we should be? Are we doing what the Lord would have us do? I close with a very memorable story from Pastor Andy Davis on how Psalm 51 penetrates our hearts to talk about the warnings of sin and to get real help from God before it's too late. Listen to what Pastor Andy Davis says. 
People are complex, and sin complexifies. In my almost 25 years of pastoral ministry, I have had many hard conversations, as well as many awkward ones. Hard conversations include confronting someone in a significant sin pattern as a first step in painful church discipline process. I once had to deal with a man in an adulterous relationship who thought he was still acting in complete secrecy. He didn't know that his wife had hired a private investigator who obtained proof positive of the affair. In front of the two church leaders, I read him the account of Ananias and Sapphira lying to God from Acts 5 and said, sometimes we only get one chance to tell the truth. I asked him if he was involved in an adulterous relationship. He lied to me and the other two men. Amazingly, within a month, he had been diagnosed with the cancer that took his life in less than a year. Thankfully, after some time, he confessed and renounced the sin completely before he died. But I never forgot how scary the lessons of holiness were from that fateful moment. I and the other two men still shudder with the memory. What does God require of us? God requires a broken and contrite heart that feels their need for Christ. Our sin deeply stains us and corrupts us. And only God's mercy can cleanse and save us. Let's pray. Father, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy, we rejoice that in Christ you do blot out our transgressions. You do cleanse us from our iniquities. And yet you tell us in your word that if we have sinned, we are to confess our sins, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we pray even now as we join in singing and as we reflect on Psalm 51, that you would create in each one of us broken and contrite hearts, knowing that if we have contrite hearts, you will accept our worship as pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.